Our assembly on this Sunday afternoon, as always, it's our desire, as was prayed a little bit earlier, that it might be a matter that glorifies and honorifies, that honors the God of heaven, and does so in such a way, of course, that you and I may worship in truth and in spirit. You may have noticed that our lesson tonight for the month of February is our second installment this calendar year of questions and answers, and so these, as is often the case for these, have been completely and fully presented by by you. As always, again, that box is out there in the foyer, and whether you write your question and place it in that or just share it with me in a personal way, all of that is, is perfectly acceptable. But these questions tonight are those that have been directed in that way, and so I think you'll find some of these questions intriguing, interesting, and somewhat developing as far as some of the matters in the Word of God are in fact, preserved, uh, are in fact presented to us. I have a listing of the questions before us tonight, and our first one, that I'll turn the slide and at least set it before us, looks like this. In Matthew 6, verse 7, the Scripture says, You should not use vain repetitions when you pray. Does this mean we should not pray for the same things every prayer? Please expound on prayer. So the person who wrote this has asked a good question having to do with a reading that was presented to us just, in fact, a moment ago. It was the lesson text as I selected it. In Matthew 6, verse 7, in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus pointed out there, do not be given to the utilization of vain repetitions. What did the Lord mean by that? Would it be acceptable for you and me to pray oft the same thing, to ask for the same thing? If so, then what, what might be involved in that particular passage? Let's step through what you'll notice there on the slide before us. The person also asked that we at least expound slightly on prayer. Prayer is that remarkable communication in which you and I talk to God. We express to Him our concerns and express to Him our thanksgivings, and we express to Him our delight and desire that His will be accomplished. In that attribute of prayer, the Word of God has much, of course, to say about it. But you may notice one of the first promises and one of the first glorious blessings that come with it is that to those who are His children, not only do we have the assurance that He answers, or rather that He hears that prayer, but that He answers it. For instance, in Psalm 34, verse 17, even in the Old Testament era, it's there asserted that for those that are righteous, when they cry unto the Lord, He hears them and delivers them out of their trouble. As you and I transition to the New Testament, we find in 1 Peter 3, verse 12, that it says that the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and His ears are open unto their prayers, but that to those who are the wicked, that in fact He does not make any promises. That text, in fact, offers no assurance at all. It even states the, the opposite. Their prayers are abomination unto Him. To say it all that way is to say this. The Word of God highlights in such a dramatic way the beauty and the power of prayer. James 5.16 certainly says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. What about then vain repetitions? May I ask that we all take note. It is not repetition that is condemned, or at least that is offered in a negative way. It's vain repetition. I think you and I would do well to notice there's nothing wrong with asking for the same thing more than once. 
to include asking in prayer for the same thing on oft occasions. In fact, it's not even wrong. What's wrong are vain repetitions. Repetitions that are falling into the category of what is vanity, at least as that word is used here. It is for that reason I ask you to notice on the slide, what then is a vain one? It would appear from the context as well as the meaning of the Greek word that a vain repetition is one in which the person merely asks without a sense of duty, asking only out of habit or asking out of a sense of having a good appearance before others. Maybe I include this statement in prayer every time just so others can be impressed by what I say. That others might in fact be drawn to my usage of language or that others might be impressed by my reference to certain things. But I may not have any real sense of conviction of that which I pray. It would seem that's what the Lord meant by His reference to a vain repetition. The Greek word, as you can see on the slide, has to do with babbling that supposedly makes one more public. Again, to merely phrase it this way, just so that others can be impressed by what I'm asking, though I may have little interest or even conviction that God will offer the answer to what I'm saying. Vain repetitions. Could you and I today be guilty of this? We know that those Pharisees at that day and time... You remember the passages that would talk about them standing in public ways and where they could often be heard and praying these long, lofty prayers. That would include poor, partly what Jesus described as these vain repetitions. They were standing in public, asking in a way to impress others with their usage of language and the things to which they referred, but they really weren't asking it out of the heart. You and I know today we could be guilty of the same thing. If I always just out of habit include something in my prayer without giving really consistent thought to what that's referring to. One of the statements, at least in older days, that probably could at least be something we should think about. God, guide, guard, and direct me. Well, maybe we heard that in almost every prayer at one time. And it's not at all to say if that was prayed in earnestness, that was wonderful. I hope you and I are aware of the fact, though, that it, as we pray with the Spirit, and as we pray with understanding how needful it is, that we not fall into any kind of a trap of just saying the same thing for the sake of saying it. In fact, as you notice at the bottom of that slide, look at several examples in the Bible where there were those who did ask multiple times for the same thing. What about Paul's example in 2 Corinthians 12? He played three times for his removal of the thorn in the flesh. Three times. Now, you and I know God did not answer that prayer in the way that He asked it. But it was not because He asked it three times. You might recall that He was assured that it would be better for Him that that thorn remain, that He would not be lifted up above measure, that He not, would, would not be given to matters of haughtiness and arrogance. The fact that God didn't answer it was not because He asked it more than once but was because of the fact that it was better for him that it remained. There's an example then of where an inspired apostle asked for something more than once. And there's no hint that it was wrong that he asked for it more than once. What about Luke 18, beginning in verse 1? I'd like to read this passage in our hearing. Notice what it has to say about asking for something more than once. And he spake a parable 
unto them to this end that men ought always to pray and not to faint. So we have at the very outset of this passage a reference to the fact that Jesus was teaching an example, a parable, wherein He asserted the importance of praying and not fainting. But here's the way that develops. Saying, There was in a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the, judge, and the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith. I'll pause at that point to say this. There are a few other statements that might be made in the verses that follow, but did you notice already what was asserted? Here was an unjust judge. There was a person, a widow, who came and made a plea of him in his role as a judge, and at first he did not grant what she requested. But then this observation is made. He made this choice. Unless I take care of giving what she asked, she's going to continue coming to me, and she's going to continue asking this, and she's going to trouble me time and again. And so he granted her request. Now, I'd say that there are many things about that that we would not directly say is a good mirror for the, for the behavior of God. But this seems to be the point. Here's a person who asks something, and he knew she was going to continue to ask it, and so he granted her request. At least one of the lessons in that seems to be that you and I may very well continue to ask of God for the exact same thing, and there seems to be nothing wrong with that. In fact, it is encouraged, it is highlighted, and it is asserted that this is something to which God's attention should be drawn. Is it okay to ask for the same things more than once? Absolutely. You may notice on this next slide, I even point that out this way. The Bible asserts that when you and I are convicted about something, that we are faithfully aware of the consideration of some matter, it would be right to ask of our Heavenly Father of it more than once. In James 1, verses 5 and following, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not. But it is necessary to ask in faith, nothing wavering. If our wisdom leads us to appreciate that this is the best, maybe it's something connected to your health, something connected to something in your family, something connected to otherwise matters at your place of business. If in your wisdom you deem that to be the proper matter in light of bringing God's will about, surely we would appreciate praying for that more than once, perhaps even frequently. The last thing on that slide. In 1 Corinthians 14, 15, we surely are desirous of praying with the Spirit and praying with the understanding. And so the person who asks, is it wrong to pray for something more than once? Oh, absolutely not. And in fact, you and I might be thrilled to notice some of these ways the Bible discusses that and encourages in a heart of conviction how that, that might well be a wonderfully appropriate thing. What about our second question of the night tonight? The person asked this question, 
What is meant by Genesis 6, verse 3? When the Bible says men's days being 120 years. In early Bible times, people seemed to live longer. Then gradually, our time on earth has been shortened. Where is this spoken about in the Bible? Really, the person asked two questions, it seems to me, in in this question, and so we'll try to at least deal with each one of them. But one question has to do with Genesis 6, verse 3, and what's the meaning of the number referred to in, in that particular passage. But then there's another question about the lifespans of humanity. Let's answer the second one first. What about the lifespans of humanity? The person again made the observation that in early Bible times, people lived longer. But then gradually those years, that time was shortened. Let's give that some attention as follows. You'll notice on the slide, it's exactly right, and the person was identically on point. To highlight that in those early Bible times, the lifespans of those individuals living on the planet appeared to be significantly longer than lifespans of you and me today. In fact, you might want to go ahead and be turning back to Genesis chapter 5, where there we're going to give some emphasis to at least some of the details provided in that chapter. The lifespans of the patriarchs mentioned in that chapter were significantly longer than the lifespans of the day today. So on this next slide, I have tallied some of them in the following way. One by one, I simply step through the posterity of Adam, specifically through the line of Seth. Now all of this is not guesswork. It is shared with us in Genesis chapter 5. But Adam died at age 930. His son Seth died at age 912. Seth's son Enos died at age 905. At this point, notice how they rather quickly follow. Canaan lived to be 910. Mahalalel, 895. Jared, 962 years. Enoch on earth lived only 365 years, but you and I well recall that he was translated, he was taken, that he did not see death. Beyond him, Methuselah died at age 969. Lamech, age 777. At this point, we quickly come to Noah, who lived to the advanced age of 950 years. I list all of them to say this. The Word of God seems rather clear in saying that those early individuals on the planet lived almost a thousand years apiece. To you and me, that seems such a long time. To contemplate living on the planet that long. There are those who have asserted maybe the Bible's usage of the word year in those contexts is not the year as you and I would think of it. Maybe that was only, let's say, a month or something, and thus, as you count up, 912 years, for example, that really wasn't entirely much longer than you and I live on earth today. The Bible really doesn't sustain that line of consideration. Every reference that we have and every illusion that's presented to us appears to dictate that those years were the same as our years. And so those people really did live much longer than you and I do today. The person, though, who asked the question did point out That clearly hasn't continued that way. Let's look at the next slide as well. I continued the listing, and so as you look at Noah's sons and their posterity, 
Let's look at their years, and this is drawn from Genesis chapter 11. Shem, one of those sons of Noah, died at age 600. Now, that's still a long time, but considerably less than those who were his forebearers. But what about Arphaxad, his son, only 438 years? Well, what about Selah, his son, 433? And then we come to Eber, 464. Peleg and Reu, both 239. By this point, Nahor, 148. Terah, 205. Abraham, 175. Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, 180, 147, and 110. By this point, you'll notice that the actual time frames of the lives of those people had dramatically decreased from those earlier numbers we had referenced. You may notice what occurred in the midst of this. What happened in the transition between that previous slide and this one? It was the flood. Noah was the one that lived in the actual duration of that flood, and you and I know Shem did as well. But you'll notice there seemingly was a dramatic change in the directive of heaven relative to the lifespans of people, and it occurred with a major shift at the flood. One by one, the generations after the flood seemingly diminished rather quickly. By the time you get to Joseph, who is in fact the last one on the slide, we're at 110. You and I know there are people on the planet today who live to be 110. Now admittedly, not many do, but there are some. Let's go back to that previous slide then, the two prior to this one. And let's close the slide by then noting a few things. The Bible comes to ultimately speak before us about a generalization of the span of life. In Psalm 90, verse number 10, the inspired writer at that point pointed this out, and I would invite you to note one interesting observation. Who wrote the 90th Psalm? I know that we might be tempted to say it was David, because David did pen the lion's share, at least many of the Psalms. But I think it's interesting to notice, if you look at the superscription of Psalm 90, it is attributed to someone other than David. It's attributed to someone other than someone who lived about the time of David. It's attributed to Moses. Now, I know, as you do as well, those superscriptions are not inspired. But I do find it intriguing that from the perspective of the distant past, it seemingly was appreciated that Moses was the penman for Psalm 90. You and I know that Moses lived in a time, of course, when it was long before the days of David. It was long before the time frame otherwise spoken of, and yet Moses may well have been the one that said, The days of our years are threescore years and ten. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow, and we are cut off and we soon fly away. It may well be Moses who by even his time, and remember that wasn't that long after Joseph, who pointed out that the lifespan is about 70 to 80 years. You and I know that has persisted until our present day. Very little change on average. When I looked at the recent statistics about the average lifespan, gentlemen, you and I aren't much over 70 years on average. Ladies, you're a little bit further along than that. The average is much closer to 77 for you. 
But that's still between 70 and 80 years. It continues to be that way, just as the Bible declared it then. It might be interesting to notice, then as you and I close that, one question remains. If indeed the lifespans have been dramatically shorter than those early patriarchs of Genesis 5, then what is it that's under discussion in Genesis 6-3 when it refers to 120 years? May I read the passage? And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be in hundred and twenty years. One hundred twenty years. There are those who have thought maybe that's a reference to God's decree at that point that the lifespans are going to be shortened to 120. I seriously doubt that that's what's under discussion here for the reasons you and I noted on that previous slide. The lifespans for many generations after this were still well above 120. Remember, they were around 400, and then 300, and then 200. And for many generations, there were many who lived quite a bit longer than 120. You may notice, though, what immediately transpired after this, beginning in verse 4, is the build-up to the flood. It would appear to me that the reference here is that 120 is a reference to the amount of time between the moment wherein the decree was given to the coming flood and the actual occurrence of it. Thus, Noah had 120 years to prepare for the flood. He had 120 years to construct the ark, to make everything ready and appropriate, and to gather the animals as needed as God brought them to him, and to make everything ready for the occurrence and the reality of the flood. It would appear to me that's what the 120 referred to. It wasn't the lifespans of people. It was the duration of time until, from that moment, the flood was going to actually transpire. The question that related to the lifespans, that was a very good question, just as all of these are. Why don't we come to question number three tonight? Question number three is asked as follows. In Job chapter 2 verse 1, Are the sons of God the angels since Satan came with them? May I invite you to turn to the book of Job. In the opening two chapters of that interesting and powerful book, we do have in chapter 2 verse 1 the very reference that the person made who asked this question. The person asked about the sons of God, and that verse reads as follows, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. So we have a direct reference to the sons of God, and the person has asked, Is that reference to the sons of God a reference to the angels? Another very good question. The first thing we might notice is the one I've asked you to indicate. When you and I look into the Word of God, and we observe the references to the sons of God, and that reference occurs much more than just in Job 2 verse 1, does it refer to angels in any of the other passages? Does it refer to angels in the variety of contexts in which we typically see it? I've asked you to notice on the slide as nearly as I can tell, in not one single time, in all of them, is the phrase, sons of God, a reference to angels. Look at a few of them with me. 
In Genesis 6, verse 2, which again takes us right back to the verse just before the verse, that was a part of the question we just now previously considered. But the reference there to the sons of God, it was not to angels. It was to people living on earth. Those who chose to live godly, being in the line of Shem, who were those directing their lives according to the features of God's divinely revealed will. And that stood in contrast to those that were going to be consumed in the flood. They, you see, were not reckoned as sons of God. They chose to live wickedly. They chose to live separate and apart from the righteousness that would be connected to God. So their sons of God wasn't angels. What about John 1 verse 12 in the New Testament? There again, the phrase sons of God is not a reference to angels. It's a reference to holy people living on earth who choose to do by way of belief that which is the will of God and are born into the kingdom. That's what the text says. What about the next one in Romans eight fourteen? They're sons of God. Again, it's not angels. It's righteous people like you and me. Philippians 2, 15, sons of God is not angels. There it's another reference to holy people, righteous people, those who choose by way of using their talents and abilities to serve the God of heaven. And they do so in a way that's noble and good. Finally, in 1 John 3, verse 1, sons of God, righteous people. I would again say that in all the places the phrase sons of God appears, not angels. I would offer the thought it doesn't appear to be angels in the book of Job either. For that reason, what then would be the reference to the sons of God in the book of Job? May I point out that the reference also takes us back to Job chapter 1, verse 6. That phrase, sons of God, occurs earlier in the book, and there it reads like this. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. I find it intriguing that that reference to sons of God in verse 6 follows, obviously, verse 5. What was it that was occurring in verse 5? It says, And it was so, when the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them, and rose up early in the morning, and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned, and cursed God in their hearts, thus did Job continually. It appears that verse 5 is a reference to a scene of worship. He was offering burnt offerings. And that was in a day prior to the actual giving of the law of Moses, it would seem, because Job is reckoned as a righteous man. The law of Moses appears not to be then in force, and Job was offering that which would be appropriate under the patriarchal era of the, of the days of the book of Genesis. Again, the book of Job is a very ancient biblical book much older in terms of what it describes than, say, books like Exodus or Leviticus or Numbers or any of them. If indeed it's true that the reference is to a time of worship, to the worship occurring in that day and time, then that's a mere appreciation Then that in worship we have the privilege of coming before God. And there can be those who, under a very sad and tragic way, will worship in a way that's not right. Well, you'll notice Satan came, too, along with these sons of God. It would seem to me this is not a reference to anything that occurred in heaven. Satan's not in heaven. 
if it's refer reference to heaven, how could Satan have been there too? It would appear that what's transpiring is a reference to events upon earth as saints cast up their worship before God. It's entirely possible that those who are wicked might well be numbered among that bunch as they would be trying to worship in ways not suitable, in ways not approved, in ways not allowed by the God of heaven. And if the appreciation is to something like that, then I believe it clears up a lot of things in connection to the opening two chapters of the book of Job. These sons of God were not angels. They were referenced to people upon earth, people who offer to God their worship. And they do this in a way that ought to be consistent with God's revealed will. But sometimes people err, and sometimes things take place, and Satan's the motivating factor behind those that are in that latter category. As you and I close that slide, this question number three has challenged us to think one more time about the sweetness of what is properly directed worship unto God. What about question number four? This question, in some ways, is related to one of our studies on Sunday morning. The question's a very good one. Is there a contradiction between 1 Kings 11, verse 3, and Song of Solomon 6, verse 8, regarding the number of Solomon's wives? Please explain. So I would ask that we read the two verses. First of all, in 1 Kings 11, verse number 3, we have that familiar passage that has been a part of our study during the Sunday morning Bible class. And it again reads as follows. And he, that's Solomon, had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. And so it seems a rather clear reference to these 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now let's read Song of Solomon chapter 6, verse 8. There are threescore queens and fourscore concubines and virgins without number. And so there's a reference here, as you can easily see, to 60 queens, 80 concubines, and virgins without number. Is this a contradiction? Is one number, obviously the first king's number, far greater? What about the number in, in Song of Solomon 6, verse 8? First of all, let's try to piece some of the features of these two questions together. That text in 1 Kings 11, verse 3, again, is a reminder of the life and times of Solomon as king of, uh, of the people of Israel. In Solomon's reign, obviously in the materialistic direction of it, he came to have lots and lots of wives, 700 of them, together with 300 concubines. As you and I turn to the book called The Song of Solomon, which was written by Solomon, chapter 1, verse 1 tells us that. What then is this reference to this far lesser number, only 60 queens, 80 concubines? Well, as you can see on the slide, I ask you to notice one possibility, and then on the next slide in a minute, we'll notice another one. First of all, let's piece this one together. Do we have any other reference in the Song of Solomon that might give us a clue to any other particulars? Look near the closing verses of Song of Solomon chapter 3. I would point out that it would appear that the Song of Solomon references the life and times of the days of Solomon when he was yet fairly young. Look at 
At least that would appear to be the case. In chapter 3, beginning in verse number 9, King Solomon made himself a chariot of the wood of Lebanon. Now, back in the book of 1 Kings, he constructed his chariots when he was yet fairly young in terms of his kingship. Verse number 10, He made the pillars thereof of silver, the bottom thereof of gold, the covering of it of purple, the midst thereof being paved with love for the daughters of Jerusalem. Now, that seemingly describes a chariot that he constructed, and it was ornate. It had amazingly constructed wheels, and you can tell they were of fine minerals and even very precious matters. It had a purple canopy on it. Oh, it must have been something to see. And don't you know, many women would have loved to ride in something like that back in that day. And then verse 11 says, Go forth, O ye daughters of Zion, and behold King Solomon with the crown wherewith his mother crowned him in the day of his espousals, in the day of the gladness of his heart. The reference to his mother would seem to refer to a time when again she was living, and you might recall that she, of course, would not likely have lived very long into his reign. All of that, again, makes me think that the entirety of the record of the Song of Solomon is to a time when he was yet fairly young. Could it be that the reference in chapter 6, verse 8, to the 60 queens and to the 80 concubines was yet when he has selected all of them that later would have been noted in 1 Kings eleven three. That is to say, this was written and referring to a time much earlier in his reign than was the case of the final record of 1 Kings 11. So there'd be no contradiction. One just referred to a time when he hadn't yet made the appointment of or the selection of or the choosing of all that large number of wives and concubines. But I would say there's yet another possibility, and it's on the next slide. Here, too, you might note the following. As you read that chapter, which is the sixth chapter of the Song of Solomon, it would appear that we should note this. The Song of Solomon is a very intriguing book in that it details, of course, the life and times of Solomon, but it does so in this regard. You and I would imagine that those ladies, those women, that they had an interest in being among his harem for obvious reasons. They had access to a lot of things that the king could, could in fact, make available to them, not the least of which would be financial matters, otherwise connected to favors that might be certainly showered on her family. But there's one other thing that ought to be noted. In the Song of Solomon, the principal issue in it is there was a young damsel, the Shulamite, as she is called in chapter 1, and referred to again later in the book. And although Solomon was impressed by her beauty, she was not interested in being among his harem. I hope you and I will think carefully about that. He wooed her with all the capabilities that he had. He brought her to the capital against her will, and he showed her the finery of the palace, the interesting features of his harem as it already existed. And he impressed her with the nature of the funds and the wealth, and she had not the least interest in any of it. She was already in love with a shepherd boy. Though poor he was, that was true love. And that's always going to be true love, 
two people who are committed to one another. And though others may direct attention to one or the other of these, their love is to each other, and their commitment is to each other. And in her, she had already been betrothed to this young, this young shepherd boy, it would appear, and she remained committed to him, despite the blandishments of Solomon, despite the, shall we say, the intrigue of Solomon, and despite the particular way in which he sought to woo her into becoming one of his queens. It may be in that regard that those queens mentioned in chapter 6, verse 8, that there was a hierarchy of those queens. Maybe some of them occupied a place of greater finery. Isn't it true in 1 Kings 11, 1, that the daughter of Pharaoh was listed separately than the other wives of Solomon? That would seem to indicate that she occupied a pretty high and special place compared to some of the other ones. Maybe that's what's referred to in Song of Solomon 6a. That there was just a hierarchy of those women, and maybe the 60 that's mentioned there are truly the highest of the queens of Solomon. I would say either one of those possibilities certainly seems reasonable given the context. And that would mean that in either case should we appreciate a conflict or a contradiction in the presentation of the Word of God. We had four questions tonight. Let's close our sermon tonight with a word of conclusion. The questions were asked in a remarkable way. We're always intrigued by the thought that the Bible presents to us ways of appreciating the knowledge that God has revealed. It's not our desire ever to substitute our thinking, our perspective, our opinion, but rather what saith the Scriptures? That's the famous question asked in Romans 4 verse 3. Tonight, as you and I have looked at prayer in connection to vain repetitions, we had an interesting observation. Hopefully a good reminder that it isn't wrong to ask for the same thing more than once. The second question brought to our attention the feature of Genesis 6 verses 3 and 4. The 120 years and the change in the average lifespan of people. We learn much about what was presented both before and after the flood of Noah's day. The third question took our attention to the features about the sons of God. How that that was not angels in Job chapter 2 verse 1. And finally, the last question about the number of the wives of Solomon and that there's no contradiction in Song of Solomon 6, 8 and 1 Kings 11 verse 3. As we close this lesson, I hope we've each been motivated to consider with sweetness the Word of God and how that we do find in it answers to some of our questions and things that can motivate us in our faithful service to the God of heaven. Tonight, as you and I analyze ourselves, whether we be in the faith, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. It certainly is an opportune time, but if we find ourselves distant from the Lord, it is not Him that moved. It's you and me. We're the ones that moved. We're the ones that transgressed, and we're the ones that have been chosen to live in this way habitually and consistently apart from the law of God. Tonight, if you find yourself in that situation in life, all hope is not lost. For what is required of you, as stated in the Word of God, is to repent of those errors, those sins, make confession of them, come back unto God, and we'd be delighted to pray for you. If you've never become a Christian, however, then to become a member of the body of Christ, you must be baptized into that body, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. Those prerequisites to baptism are these, believe on the Lord, 
repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. And at that point, live faithfully until death. And the crown of life of Revelation 2.10 is yours. This evening, Brother Larry's chosen this song of encouragement. If we could be of help to you in some way, we invite you to come at once while together we stand and while we sing.